Fathers, three words for you. Peace, time, contract. I remember a cartoon I saw about a year ago and the first scene was this. Uh, the dad woke up and he said, Whew, is today gonna be better than yesterday? Probably not. <laughs> was yesterday a bad day? Absolutely it was. Third frame. But will I have a good attitude heading in today? We'll see. I think sometimes we know that it's going to be difficult to be a dad, but hopefully our attitudes are a little bit more excited about what's in store for us. But think about these challenges that we have regularly as dads. We're working through what it means to be a dad. There's going to be conflict when we engage with, with life. I have three little munchkins at home, seven, five, and three, and it's all encompassing. Throughout the night, someone's gonna wet their bed, someone else is gonna have a night terror. It feels like you're up half the night. Even during the day, because they're so young, they need constant supervision so they're not rummaging through the pantry or writing on the wall or playing with water or something of that sort. But maybe you have kids who are teenagers and you're thinking, what's it look like to be a great mom, a great dad during this time? And you want to be engaged in their lives and they want you to be engaged in their life, but only at the right time. And so now you have this challenge. Well, do I take them to the mall and do I walk 10 feet behind them? Do I just hand them 100 bucks and say, go nuts? Do I drop them off and expect that they're going to behave themselves? And then there's the challenge of parenting adult children. And you love your adult kids. And when their heart breaks, your heart breaks. And you think, oh, man, I want their relationships to go well. I want them to make good financial decisions. And when they lose their job, it's heartbreaking. So how are we going to survive this coming conflict? I don't want to be negative, but we all know the conflict is coming, right? Is it going to be fighting over who gets the Nintendo? Or is it going to be fighting about who gets the keys? Or is it going to be fighting about it's family movie night? What are we going to watch on Netflix? Peace, time, contract. So think about Father's Day. Maybe you have some homemade burgers and there's an ice cold Coke and nobody is fighting. Everybody's enjoying a great meal with mom and dad. It's a good time. And so it's not in the midst of a really challenging situation. And you say, okay, kids, what are we going to do? What are we going to do when it's 10 o'clock and I tell you to turn off the screens and you're not listening? What are we going to do when I expect you to get three straight A's on your report card, but you came back with an A and two C's? And I know you can do better than that. What are we going to do when you both ask for the car keys this weekend? It's a peacetime contract. And so you talk about something in advance so that when it happens, it's not going to be this big blow up that takes place. At my house, we have two little guys, a seven-year-old and a five-year-old, and they love Nintendo. This past Halloween, they dressed up as Mario and Luigi. It was super cute. And so we decided we would have a chore sheet. And they know in advance that if they fill out this chore sheet and they do everything they're expected to, they'll get Nintendo online for the summer. What they don't know is that they're going to have to continue doing that chore sheet in July so they get to play the Nintendo over the summer. What does a peacetime contract look like for you? What does it mean when it comes to report cards? What does it mean when it comes to using the cards? Does the, your daughter get it on Friday night and your son get it on Saturday night? How are you going to make these peacetime contracts take place? Because we know the conflict is going to come. We know there's going to be challenges, so what are we going to do when we get to those challenges? Is it going to stop the conflict? No. But it gives you an idea what to do when the conflict arrives. 
If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up to 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter 5. If you have a Bible in front of you, um, Peter is near the end of the Bible. The big numbers are the chapter numbers, small numbers are the verse numbers. If you have a smartphone or a tablet with you, certainly you can download the Bible app. The book of Peter is only five chapters long, and it's pretty evenly divided into three significant sections. The first part is about this big idea, remember your salvation. Remember who you are in Christ. The second part, we're living as resident aliens. The third part, will you suffer well? Last week, we dug really deep into this idea of suffering, and we started off with this understanding that we're all going to suffer, expect to suffer. Then we talked about rejoicing your suffering. When suffering happens, what is it telling you about yourself? What is it telling you about Jesus? How do we engage more effectively? And then we wrapped up by talking about entrusting our sufferings to God because he cares for us. In short, the whole message was about walking with God through pain and suffering. Now Peter is shifting gears a little bit. It's still a talk about suffering, but he's saying, okay, here's what you need to know. Things are actually going to get worse. Do you know why Peter wrote 2 Peter? Because things got worse. The government is actually going to become more antagonistic towards Christians. Your neighbors are not going to want to engage with you because of your faith. And there's going to be racial and cultural divides. It's a 2,000-year-old book, but it sounds an awful like what we're dealing with today, doesn't it? So Peter closes his letter with some direction. How are we going to survive the coming conflict? Our passage today begins with an appeal to church leaders. This is 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. What Peter does here is absolutely fascinating. I love what he does. If you spent more than a few years at church, you know who Peter is and you know his background. If you're brand new to church, welcome. But here's a brief summary of his greatest hits. Jesus had 12 disciples, 12 apprentices. Peter was one of his closest three friends, and he got to see and experience things that not everybody else did. Peter witnessed things that were kept from other apostles. Peter was the unofficial spokesman of the disciples. And it was Peter to whom Jesus said in front of everybody else, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. After Jesus died and rose from the grave and ascended into heaven, it was Peter who started leading the disciples. It was Peter who spoke in Acts chapter 2 to all these Jews coming out of the temple and 3,000 believed that day. It was Peter alongside John who stood in front of the Jewish courts and said, you cannot stop us from preaching the name of Jesus. It is this Peter who says, I'm a fellow elder. He doesn't flaunt his position. He doesn't boast about his accomplishments. He comes like Jesus before him to serve. If that isn't proof enough, look at what he says in verse one as well. I was a witness of Christ's sufferings. Do you know what else Peter witnessed? Only with two other people, James and John, Peter saw Jesus literally transform before his very eyes. In Matthew 17, we read there Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. And just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. This isn't normal everyday stuff. Peter also got to witness the resurrected Jesus time and time again. And yet that's not what Peter focuses on. 
as he closes his letter to the people that he's writing to. He shows church leaders how to act towards others. He appeals to them as a fellow leader. He reminds them that Christ suffered and is on mission. He reminds us that suffering precedes glory. When I read this line, I think there must have been a holy hush to the churches that were reading this letter aloud. Peter, a fellow elder. And you get this feeling that they pause and went, oh, he's with us. He gets us. He understands the challenges. The appeal continues in verse two. Shepherd the flock that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Peter is going to make three appeals in rapid succession. The first is this, serve willingly. Imagine you go to a church We're not going to name any churches. We're not talking about anybody in particular, just an idea. And you walk up to your pastor and you say, hey, pastor, how's it going? How was your week? And he goes, ugh, this past week was tough. I had marriage prep and those two, I don't know if they're going to last. Had this board meeting and that was a disaster. And my staff just keep coming to me with all these problems. And you're thinking, I thought you were going to care for me. And now I don't quite know what to say to you. And you say, well, I... No, I hope next week will be better. And he goes, I doubt it. Every week is like this. And you go, well, then why are you still being a pastor? Why are you acting this way? If you hate it, why are you doing it? And Peter is looking at the leaders in the church and he's saying, will you serve willingly? He never says it's not going to be difficult. We talk a little bit about this ministry in our church called Freedom Session. It's an intensive discipleship journey, and it's hard work because we're overcoming um, strongholds that are in our lives that we want to defeat. We're overcoming um, sins that are in our lives that we want to defeat, and it's difficult, but the end result is amazing. We talk regularly about Alpha. It's one of our greatest evangelistic outreaches. Alpha is an opportunity to explore the Christian faith. And we know it's going to be hard as followers of Jesus in this room and watching online. We know it's difficult. We know it's hard to invite somebody like that and they say no. For those of you who serve in Alpha, you know those first couple of weeks are a little bit awkward. But then you get to watch somebody make the journey from unbeliever to believer. You get to see them baptized in that tank and you celebrate with them. It can be really difficult but it's amazing. Then Peter says, will you not only serve willingly, will you serve eagerly? In the last few words of verse two, we read, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. I have a friend and he was telling me this story. It's a true story. His old pastor um, would always complain about how much money he had. And so he tried to figure out ways that he could take his pastoral work and stretch it a little bit bigger. And so if money was a little bit tight, he would say to a couple people in the church, hey, can I come give you a pastoral visit? And who says no to that? Most people love it when the pastor comes to visit. But if the church was here, he'd plot out who was furthest away and he would drive to all their homes in a big round way and claim the kilometers immediately so he could expense it. And Peter says, don't act that way. Are you here to serve eagerly? And friends, we have a board that loves to serve. We have staff that are working hard on hybrid ministry. What can we do in person and online to serve our church community and those who call Ellerslie home? We have incredible team members who are welcoming you when you walk in and who are serving our kids upstairs. And here's what's so cool. 
Colton, he's our worship director. He's not here today. Yesterday, him and his wife welcomed their first baby into this world. And Jiho, who was leading right here, said, I'll serve. I would love to be a part of what Ellerslie's doing. I would happily lead our band this morning. Finally, and I love this one, serve as examples. Verse three says, do not domineer over those in your charge, but be examples of the flock. I love sports and I'm trying to use less sports illustrations, but you got to forgive me for this one. You ever go to a kid's soccer game, basketball game, hockey game, maybe you're the parent, maybe your aunt and uncle, maybe your grandma and grandpa, and you think, what's the deal with the referee? Why does he feel like he owns this place? He feels like he's the show, not the kids who are playing. And when I see referees like that, I often wonder to myself, what do you do in your day job? Are you the boss and you always need to be in control? Are you a low-level employee and this is the one place you get to be in control? Did you just have a big fight with your spouse before you came and you're taking it out on these bunch of 13-year-olds? When Jesus arrived on the scene, he reminded his followers, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Peter comes in humility as a fellow elder and he says, church leaders, will you live as examples? It's easy for me to stand up here and say, if you don't know how to live, look at me. And it's, and it's scary because I'm not perfect but you see how I interact with my family in the foyer. You see how I talk to other people. You run into me at the grocery store because we live in the community. But if that's not enough, let me take it a step further. He's not just looking at church pastors. He's looking at church leaders. And he's saying, will you be an example? If you're in the trades and you say, I don't know how to be a Christian in the trades, let me introduce you to a couple of my friends. Foremen, electricians, carpenters who say, we love Jesus, we love our family, and we're living it out. Maybe you're in the medical profession and you think, I don't know what a Christian ethic looks like in medicine right now. I'll introduce you to some amazing nurses and doctors in our church. Maybe you're a retiree, a stay-at-home parent, and you're trying to figure out what does this look like? We have examples all around us of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and to do it well. Peter wraps up this section with a promise in verse four. When the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive an unfading crown of glory. Doesn't get much better than that, does it? It's a reminder also as to who we minister for. We don't minister for ourselves. We don't minister for the spotlight. We minister for Jesus. Twice this past week, I was reminded once in a book, once uh, in a sermon about how all of us are given a different shape. My word, not the words that were used. And I'm going to blow through this acronym super fast. But if you've ever heard that idea shaped before, what are your spiritual gifts? Your heart stands for what, is your, what are you passionate about? What are your abilities? What's your personality? What are your experiences? How has God wired you to do the things God has called and prepared in advance for you? So that when you stand before God, he might look at you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. In the first century, when a general would come home from war as a, as a victor, he would place upon his head a golden crown. And they would come through the streets, the army, the soldiers, and they would recognize there is victory. 
In the first century during athletic contests, the winner of that race or that wrestling match would wear a crown of flowers to symbolize he is the victor, he is the winner. And the apostle Peter says, brothers, sisters, do you realize that God has prepared for you an unfading crown of glory? Will there be an earthly reward? I certainly hope so. We'll see people baptized. We'll see people come to faith. We'll see marriages restored. We'll see families come to Jesus. And we get the glories of heaven. But Peter isn't just writing to church leaders here. He's writing to the church as a whole, making sure that everybody, the leaders and the family of the church would recognize there is a coming conflict. How are we going to survive that? So Peter begins with this an appeal to the church family, walk humbly before God and before others. This is chapter five, verse five. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This final chapter is set up beautifully. He starts with the church leaders and he says to them, church leaders, this is how you are to act. Serve willingly, serve eagerly, serve as examples. Church family, follow them. I think I mentioned last week that somebody came up to me and said, Dave, this book is so countercultural. Submit to the government, submit to your boss, wives, submit to your husbands. Now he's saying church family, submit to the church leaders. But friends, here's the idea here. We've entitled this sermon series, Resilience. And I mentioned earlier, do you know why Second Peter is written? Because they weren't listening at the end of First Peter. First Peter is about difficulty coming from outside the church. Second Peter is about difficulty coming inside the church. But leaders, if we lead well, church family, if we follow well, great things happen. But it's totally countercultural, and I absolutely get that. We have skepticism. Dave, are you watching what's going on around you? Does the government actually have our best will in mind, or they just want us to follow along? Does our boss actually want us to succeed or does he just want to make sure things happen so he gets the bonus? At my last church, pastors used and abused their power. How do I know it's going to be any different here? According to the World Economic Forum, 86% of people surveyed said we were in the midst of a leadership crisis. That's not just in the church. That's throughout all of North America. And I could read powerful passages about humility or the value of submission or things of that sort. But I'm going to be a little bit more bold. And I'm going to say, look around you. Do you see how united our board is right now? Do you engage our staff in the foyer throughout the week and realize that they are serving joyfully? Do you recognize that people are walking in and being greeted by our first impression team? Our tech team is working hard, the kids people upstairs, and they're doing so out of the gladness of their heart. The unity around our church right now is palpable. And Peter is saying, will you dress humbly as well? When you wake up in the morning, will you say to yourself, I'm going to choose grace instead of bitterness? I'm going to come with a mindset of growth and with learning rather than judgment and frustration and that we would build a piece of heaven right here on earth. 
He continues in verse six and seven, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time he may exalt you. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Peter was deeply humbled before God. It crossed my mind this past week. How often do you think Peter thought of the night that he betrayed Jesus? It's not just in one of the gospels, but it's in all four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all record Peter betraying Jesus. How often do you think when he hears that rooster crow that he goes to himself, oh man, that's the time that I betrayed Jesus when I told him I wouldn't. This book ends by Peter talking about a couple of his friends, Sylvanus and Mark. And Mark is the author of the gospel of Mark. And many academics believe that it was uh, Peter who dictated to Mark, this is what you are to write. Write about my failure. Write about how I told Jesus I would not betray him and I would not leave him in the dust. Put it in the gospel and others will as well. But thankfully the story doesn't end there. Just a short time later, Jesus restores Peter, forgives Peter, welcomes him back into his brace, and further than that, says, go feed my sheep. In the midst of our lowest point, when we feel like it can't get any worse, the mighty hand of God is caring for us. We know there's going to be a coming conflict, whatever it might be, but we also know that God is preparing us and suffering precedes glory. Today is Father's Day. Whether you have little kids of your own or whether they're growing up, maybe you're an uncle, maybe you're a grandparent, and you get to see these little kids. And one of the best things for me about being a dad is when my little kids come up to me and say, Dad, will you carry me? Dad, will you pick me up? Dad, can I ride on your shoulders while we go on this walk? And there's something special there because that child is placing all their care and all their trust into you. Dad won't drop me. It's better because grandpa is here. My uncle will take good care of me. And Peter is saying, cast all your anxieties on God because he cares for you. You can trust that he will pick you up and carry you onward. So how do we survive the coming conflict? Certainly walk humbly, but also resist the devil. This is verses 8 to 11. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. There's this legendary story during the Reformation in the 1500s. Martin Luther is posting his thesis on uh, the Wittenberg door and saying, church, this is what needs to change. His big idea was the church was selling indulgences, ways of making money just to basically be asked for forgiveness. But the church is not happy with Martin Luther for that. And he is facing incredible pressure. And there's a legendary story. I don't know where it started or how it began, but Martin Luther is sleeping in the middle of the night and he gets a tap on his shoulder and he turns over and it's the devil. And he looks at the devil and he goes, oh, it's only you. And turns around and goes back to sleep. 
Jesus is sending out the disciples for the first time on their own. And he says to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. But do not rejoice, the Spirit submit to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This has made Satan even more angry than before because he knows his time is short. And so he has to make every minute count. But it's not like we're at home one day and somebody knocks on the doorbell, uh, the door and we open up our door and Satan is standing there with a pitchfork. and He's just going to start poking us until we rebuke Jesus. The apostle Paul, who knows a lot about spiritual warfare, writes Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. And maybe one of the greatest challenges the church around the world is going to be facing in the upcoming months is coming out of COVID and recognizing these little lies that we're telling ourselves. You know, I guess church really isn't that important. I haven't been watching, haven't been going, life seems to be fine. You know, life is way more comfortable in my pajamas with a cup of coffee. Kind of like this extra time that I've been given throughout the week. And you know, the foyer was never my favorite place. When Satan comes up to Jesus in the gospels and starts tempting him, do you remember what Jesus does? He responds time and time again with scripture. And the author of Hebrews says, we must continue meeting together. For some of you, it might be a little while before you feel safe coming back to the building. But when you do, it's going to be great. Making disciples is awfully difficult if we're never talking to any people. And church leaders, we are here to care and to shepherd for the people God has given us. The danger for many Christians, says one commentator, is not that we are unequipped. It's that we fail to put on the armor God has given us. So will we study the word of God? Will we pray regularly? Will we embrace community and say there's something special going on here? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. You've probably never heard of Marie Durand. She's a very normal woman with an incredible story. In southern France, overlooking the Mediterranean, stands the Tower of Constance. In the 18th century, it was built to house women who refused to give up their Christian faith. Marie Durand walked into her cell in 1729 when she was only 15 years old and one word was scratched on the stone prison cell. Resist. Three years later, her brother Pierre was hanged for his faith. And yet Marie remained resilient. 16 years later in 1745, she was offered her freedom if she would announce her Protestant faith. She rejected the offer and continued to live in her cell. For 38 years, she refused to turn her back on Jesus because Jesus never turned his back on her. She resisted the temptations of despair, of suicide, of betrayal, and used her time to encourage her other cellmates and to write letters to everybody who would engage with her. Marie Durand is a picture of resilience and what it means to resist the devil in the face of conflict. Peter wraps up this letter by saying some final greetings in verses 12 to 14. He says this, Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm. 
She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all who are in Christ. Here's my takeaway from the closing comments. Embrace community. There are two phrases here that stand out to me. Look at how Paul Peter talks about Sylvanus and Mark. And look at what he doesn't say. He doesn't say Sylvanus is like a brother to me. He doesn't say Mark is like a son to me. He says, Sylvanus, my brother, Mark, my son. My friends, have you embraced community here at Ellerslie? Have you embraced the community that is available to you because you're part of the church family? If your wife has to go to the hospital and you have nobody to watch the kids, who are you going to call? If you know there's a skeleton in your closet and it's just eating away at you, who do you talk to and say, this is what I'm working through. Somebody please let me talk. Do you feel incredibly lonely and just have someone that you need to reach out to on a regular basis? Who do you have that you can drop everything and would be willing to drop everything for you? Friends, enough is enough. Conflict is coming. Peter doesn't say if it's going to come. He says when it's going to come. I hope for many of you who call this church your home that you have uh, experienced a good succession plan between me and Pastor Mel. I know I have been incredibly encouraged by the people who have um, spoken to me as church family members. Our staff has been amazing. The board has been incredibly supportive, but that doesn't mean it hasn't been hard. There was a time about a month ago where I called up Pastor Mel and I said, Mel, I just need to talk. And he could tell if something was going on in my voice. He said, I'll be there right away. He lives two minutes from the church. And he showed up and we met and I said, Mel, here's what's going on. And I feel like I'm just about at a breaking point. I can't, I can't do it. And Mel said, hey, allow me to take this off your plate. And if you need me, I can take something else off your plate as well. It was life-giving. There's two men in the church who every Monday morning, I text them and I say, here are my prayer requests for the week. And they write back always with encouragement and something that I need to hear. When I um, succeeded Mel and became the lead pastor, it meant my evenings got a lot more full, a lot more quick. And I wasn't quite able to get to my small group as regularly as I would like, but I'd often check in just for half an hour and we would laugh and we would have a good time. Somebody would pray for me before I signed out. Friends, this is so much more than just a good idea. It's absolutely life-giving. If you're going to survive the coming conflict, embrace community. So where do we go from here? Fill out a connect card. Whether you're new to Ellerslie or whether you've been attending for years and thinking, it's time that I get connected. Dave and David are talking about these triads. I know there's great community serving in different areas. I want to be a part of what's happening here at the church. erbc.ca slash connect. Maybe this message is hitting you really hard and you want to grow in resilience, but you don't know how. You just want to get into some sort of ministry or some sort of program. And I've talked a little bit about it earlier, this idea of freedom session. It's a 30-week intensive discipleship journey. They will place you in triads, groups of three to five people of the same gender, and you'll talk about the challenges that you're facing, and people will pray for you, encourage you, and in May, there's an incredible, incredible graduation. 
Chapter five begins with this appeal to church leaders. And maybe it sounds a little bit like I'm sucking up to the board or to our staff team or to the different ministry leaders. But friends, they are here to serve you. They are here because they love you and they recognize that as much authority or um, power as they might be given, ultimately all of it is done for the glory of Jesus Christ. And we have this picture of Jesus. In Philippians chapter two, the apostle Paul writes about Jesus himself. And he says, though he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, he made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being born in human flesh. He did not give up his divinity, but he took on his humanity. And he came to earth as a rescue mission, walking humbly. He not only resisted the devil, but he defeated the devil. He defeated death. He defeated the grave. And he rose triumphantly. And he said, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, will you embrace community? Will we be people of resilience for the glory of God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of 1 Peter. Thank you for his wisdom. Thank you for his knowledge. Thank you that he doesn't pull any punches because sometimes we just need to hear it. And all of us know that suffering exists. We've had it happen with our health or with relationships or finances or whatever the case might be. God, we thank you for our ministry leaders, our board members. We thank you for our staff team who are serving faithfully. And God, we as church members, may we be humble. May we resist the devil and may we embrace the community that you have given us so that you would be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.